time to turbocharge your online presence and unlock the true potential of your website's digital journey with their frictionless experience. This podcast delves deep into the world of user experience to help you eradicate costly friction. Join us as we dive into website and mobile app optimization to explore how refining your digital playground can become a game changer for your business. This is the Frictionless Experience, brought to you by Blue Triangle. Hello, and welcome to the Frictionless Experience, the podcast where we lay waste to digital friction. I'm Chuck Moxley. And I'm Nick Palladino. On today's episode, we're diving into one of the five forces of friction that occur in digital experiences. And joining us today is Ken Goldschwartz, who heads digital solutions and strategies at Wyndham Hotels. Ken, welcome to the Frictionless Experience. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Always good catching up with you. Before I dive into questions for Ken, Kenny, Nick, can you explain what we mean by the five forces of friction? Yeah, so any digital experience, you're really working to understand how to continue that journey. But when we start talking about what those friction points can be, it's all about understanding that marketing is driving volume into the site. And then once you are there, how beautiful does it look? Does it look elegant? Is it new? Is it is it up to date? Then you also have the usability of it. Is it easy to know how to navigate around? Then of course you have a little bit unrelated to the actual experience itself, but the impact of seasonality against that friction. Seasonality is going to create more demand around certain aspects of your of your website. So we want to make sure to understand how that impacts the friction points. And finally, it's 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 kind of the, the time scale of how things are working, the speed of the site. And that's more than just saying, hey, let's blindly go pursue some some performance. That's saying, let's make sure that everything that we are presenting to our customers, the aesthetics, the usability of the actual experience is at a level that is elevated. Something that is quick in a perfect world, it would be instantaneous, but unfortunately we can't be instantaneous. So let's figure out what that means for our customers when it's slow, when it's fast and anywhere in between. Okay. So the five are marketing, aesthetics, usability, seasonality, and speed. Okay. And I think today we're going to talk a lot about speed because I think that's where, where Kenny's focus. So Kenny, tell us about your role and your team at Wyndham and what you're focused on. Sure. Thanks guys. So I have the pleasure of working for one of the largest hotel companies in the world, Wyndham Hotels and Resorts. And I oversee digital solutions and products over there. Um, the reality is it's just a fancy way to say I'm part of a team that oversees the website and the mobile app there. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting you guys a while back. So um, you kind of put a tool at my disposal, Blue Triangle, that's been incredibly helpful, right? In getting me to where I need to be. Um, I actually started off at Wyndham, not on the digital side, but supporting our franchise operations. But my overall background is on the digital side, right? I started off as a web developer and have been doing this for quite some time. Um, having an opportunity to work for Wyndham was an awesome one. And very, very shortly, you know, after I joined, I said, hey, how do I get over on the digital side and start working with a brand that everybody knows, right? The best part about working for some of these companies, and Nick, you kind of know this firsthand, is being able to tell people where you work and they actually know the brand, right? Um, being able to, you know, go on a vacation with my kids and say, this is one of our company's hotels. Right. Being able to make that connection and uh, Wyndham allows me to do that. So I have a pretty cool gig. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Actually, I, I always would make jokes um, and I, I'd say, I work for a, this small company called uh, you might have heard Home Depot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, and I've never worked for a company anybody would know the name of. So <laughs> I've done all tech startups. <laughs> and you probably get an employee discount at those hotels, I'm guessing, too. So your kids appreciate that from time to time. From time to time. Yeah, they, they, def- they definitely treat me well. I have no complaints. <laughs> so how many, how many sites and apps is your team working with at Wyndham? Because you have quite a few properties, right? We do, um, but we made a strategic decision a while back to essentially have, you know, one brand. Um, that's the reality. And you've kind of seen this across the hospitality industry. So what does that mean? Um, we've got, you know, a whole bunch of brands that we support, a lot of brands that people may not even realize are Wyndham. And a few years back, it feels like about three years at this point in time, we wanted to make sure that we started promoting it because that was the conversation that I'd always have a hard time when I was talking to people um, they would say, well, where do you work? And I would say, I work at Wyndham. And they're like, all right, we've seen one of those hotels. Um, and then when I would say, well, you know, have you guys ever stayed at Ramada or a Days Inn or a Super 8? And they were like, yeah, of course we have. You know, we do a road trip around the country and we stay at properties like that all the time. Um, and I would say, yeah, those are actually part of Wyndham. So we made a strategic decision as a company a while back to make sure that we've got the Wyndham name within all of our properties. So now when you're driving down the road, you'll actually see, you know, Super 8 by Wyndham, Days in by Wyndham. Um, so when we actually associate it, but from a digital perspective, we made a strategic decision to actually make our full investment into the WyndhamHotels.com domain. So even though, you know, we may have Super8.com or DaysIn.com, all of those continue to redirect to our mainstream flagship digital product. So when I start thinking of it and chuck your question around how many websites and apps do we have? The reality is the big ones, we just have one website and one app, right? We want to take advantage of all of that marketing, all of that SEO equity within one domain and drive all that traffic there. And the same thing in the app ecosystem, right? We have a Wyndham Hotels and Resorts app in the Apple App Store and the same thing on the, in the Google Play Store. That, that's really smart. It makes sense and, and cu- cuts it down. Cause we, we were talking to one company the other day, they, uh, and I can't, I won't mention the name, but they managed 3000 different sites. And, and uh, you can imagine what comes along with that, especially when you get into security and things like that. Yeah. And some of that, just so you know, Chuck, some of that predates me a little bit, but we, we used to have the same exact problem, right? Multiple websites per brand, um, dating myself a little bit, but we used to have MDOT versions of those sites as well, right? So you could imagine a product for every single brand and then a mobile-centric product for every single brand. They, from what I hear, it was a nightmare to maintain. Yeah, I can imagine. So in what ways are you and your team measuring friction? Is it just about site speed or is there more to it? Uh, site speed's one, and honestly, that's the one that comes from my largest um, you know, area of expertise, um, but honestly, it's probably, you know, equivalent to all of the other things that we do. Um, we have a great creative team in-house. Um, so they think about the user experience and the UI. Um, usually that's how we usually start off the conversation when we bring in any new feature. Um, once we actually determine the value of that feature. Um, we have an amazing analytics team in-house as well. So we're constantly A-B testing as well. So we're actually, you know, we'll put two versions of the same exact experience we'll say is it driving the behavior that we actually want to see. So Nick pointed out the forces of friction before um, we're looking at every aspect, right? From the technical perspective, that's the site speed from a usability perspective, we've got our creative UI and UX team. And then from putting it all together and saying, is the experience actually driving the behavior that we want? We've got our business analytics suite actually supporting all of that. 
Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things for me when I started to really elevate my understanding of what site performance meant was in that context of, of site speed, it's not always better to be faster. Now, in a bubble, it is 100% of the time. If I have the exact same experience and I can present it faster, that is better than the exact same experience presented slower. But where you start adding A-B testing, now I'm trying to validate more variables at the exact same time. And so when we, when we bring that element into it and understand this in the context of that site performance, it's really kind of using the, the brilliance of time in general, like the value of time. And it's, it's allowing us to say, okay, we want to present this new experience and we want to compare it to the old experience. The old experience might be faster than the new experience, but the new experience is better for our customers because of some of those other aspects of the, the forces of friction. And so when you can start quantifying that and understand where that performance is, one of the things that was really interesting for me, I used to take a look at some AB results and say, yeah, that's, that's definitely net better. I agree. Uh, you're getting two basis points. That's good. Um, but it's a lot slower. And so if we go and optimize this, let's, let's go figure out why you created that slow experience in that new version. I can get you four basis points. And that's a lot of the stuff that like really, it just triggered for me. It, it changed my perspective of what it meant. It went from just raw performance budgets where I just said, oh, if you're above this number, then you need to go, um, you know, not deploy and you need to go fix this until you're below this number and then you can go deploy this. But it, it really changes that perspective. So you're, you're going for the excellence of the customer experience as opposed to simply just engineering aspects. Yeah, and you're right, Nick. I mean, um, you know, we, we used to have the, the joke inside where what can we do to make our site faster? Um, and the reality is if you're just looking at the Google metrics, right, and about blank page will probably score the highest possible scores because it has no content on there and it'll be amazingly fast. But the reality is that content's important. And, you know, we, we want to make sure, you know, we want to promote our properties. We want to showcase those beautiful properties and those, that beautiful imagery that's associated with it. But we need to find that fine balance. And Nick, you said something in the trailer for your podcast that really kind of, you know, stuck out to me. Um, and the reality was, I will never know what is the best possible experience for every single user, right? I know you're right. If I look at it as a whole, um, chances are once I dip below a certain number, uh, our site's not going to make any additional revenue, right? Because it's performing as fast as people kind of expect it to. But the reality is there's going to be some people that are uncomfortable waiting for more than three seconds. And there's going to be some people that are willing to wait five and being able to pull and look at that data and say, how does my audience actually react to how my site functions is incredibly valuable, right? Because it allows me to make these types of decisions. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's, it's such a subconscious thing too. Like we all have our breakpoints. Every one of us have our breakpoints and you don't even know it. You don't even realize it. You don't even, you don't even understand that you're acting on those breakpoints. You're just simply doing it. So you can be clicking around and, and doing whatever you're doing. And, and the moment you hit that breakpoint, you decide to click that X, you're out of there. For the brand, that's like a that's a big problem for you. It was such a trivial thing. But it's just that it's that that very finite break. And that's that's why, you know, when you're starting to do this, you need to break it down into the at least a hundred millisecond cohort. Like you, you can't sit there and just pursue a full second and say, I need, I need to do, you know, two seconds or three seconds, right? Like that's just way too large of a time. Kenny, have you ever seen a situation where speeding up the web website wasn't better and actually caused a drop in bookings? 
Hmm. I don't think I have. I, and what I'm going to say is, Chuck, it, it based off of what Nick said, right? We, we The reality is we know what's actually driving the traffic to our website. So the example that I can make is, is if we actually started going content light. Um, so the reality is anytime we push less content, the site is going to get faster. Um, so that's probably an example where it could. Um, but we've always kind of been able to leverage our data and say, you know, our users are interested in the content, right? They are interacting with the imagery. If they're staying at a hotel, right, that's usually how they make their decision. They're looking at price, they're looking at location, and they're looking at the photos for those properties. Um, they're looking at the feedback for, you know, other people that have actually stayed there. And what we realize is, you know, yes, we can make those photos smaller, we can make those less prominent, but the reality is it is driving booking behavior and people are interested in it. That hero image does drive um, booking. So Chuck, yes, we could in theory make them smaller. The site will get faster. It will probably hurt our revenue, um, but we kind of know that in the back of our minds. So we usually won't mess around with the images too much. You know, we've tried making them a little bit smaller, but the reality is making them smaller enough to where it would speed up the site, we know would have a negative impact and we just don't do it. Yeah, and, and you're really tapping on um, on one of the other forces there, which is that aesthetics. You need a modern, a a very welcoming web experience to, to continue that journey. And if you don't have it, if you have overcompressed, if you have made them too small, if you've removed valuable content, that reduces the aesthetics. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Here. So, you know, it's it's really interesting that that ends up showing itself um, in what's kind of like a reverse uh, conversion curve. And so you'll actually have a, a conversion curve where you're converting better at slower paces. And so that's, you know, one of those situations of saying like, hey, you know, site performance is not blindly helpful. You have to make sure it's in the context of the customer experience. So what are the factors that you're looking at, that your team is looking at, and the impact of web page speed on bookings when when demand, speed, site quality, everything is changing on a second-by-second -second daily basis? What are those metrics you're kind of following and watching and, and identifying when there's a problem? Yeah, it's incredibly tough. Um, that, that's just the reality, right? Um, and so this is like one of the areas where Blue Triangle has been incredibly helpful to me, right? Um, because there is a strategy of saying, I don't know what the site behavior is going to be like on every single device that is out there. Um, and that's incredibly tough because when we look at our data, right, our analytics data um, and in any tool, right, in any performance monitoring tool, you see that data in aggregate. Um, and in aggregate, it could start to slow down, it could start to speed up, but knowing those reasons why is incredibly difficult. So usually we look at, you know, high level metrics, uh, both performance and business. And the main thing is, is we look through our funnel, right? So the journeys that the customer actually has to take to check out um, and we'll actually say, what is the conversion actually looking within those? What is the performance uh, and how does it look within those? And are those two having an impact on each other? Um, but then when we actually see some sort of problem, we then have to dig in. Right? Is this a series of errors that are starting to happen, either front end or back end? Is this a scenario where a new browser version was released and we didn't do a good job optimizing the site for that browser version? Or there's a component of code that we're leveraging that's not running as performant as possible within that browser version. So it's not an easy thing, right? Uh, it feels like if my team really wanted to, they could be stuck in the data every single day for every minute of their day. So it's not an easy thing. 
Um, but one of the things that I've been able to do is uh, like the synthetic data is incredibly valuable for uh, scenarios of what changed, right? So, and we kind of try to leverage it to our advantage as well. So RUM data is incredibly helpful. So real user monitoring data that we could actually take a look and say, what's the experience in this specific browser, this type of connection, this type of device. Um, and that gives us that flexibility, but sometimes we get lost in the data and say, why is the overall trend going up and down? From a synthetic perspective, you've got, you know, you're browsing your website on a very consistent way. So you've got the same browser coming from the same location in a relatively, you know, steady period. And then what you see is if you see massive fluctuations in there, you could usually correlate those with specific events, right? Is there any sort of connectivity issues that we had during that time? Did we deploy new code that's not performing as well? So those are some of the things. So Chuck, it's not like we are monitoring it actively as the site's there, but we do introduce it as part of our process to make sure, you know, we're not caught off guard because the argument is we know if we've had an impact on something that runs very, very consistently, chances are we're going to have an impact across the entire ecosystem. So one, one does kind of tend to feed into the other. If we encounter an issue, we research it and figure out what's going on. But before we make that you know, fix available to every one of our consumers, we actually say, did it have the improvement that we wanted across the entire ecosystem? Interesting. And you've talked a little bit about A and B testing. Can you think of a situation where, say, the business team identifies an improvement or feature they want to add and uh, to one of your digital properties, and then your analysis determines that making that change could actually harm performance? Or Yeah, I'll give you a great example that we use all the time um, is do users search uh, via a list or a map? And you guys have probably had a firsthand experience when you, whenever you do any sort of uh, destination-based shopping, right? Whether you're looking for a hotel, uh, whether you're looking for specific restaurants, something to do in the area, uh, there's two ways of searching, right? You type in the location that you're looking to go or where you're gonna be, and you see a list of all the items. Or you wanna look at the map, you're familiar with the area, and then you wanna start taking a look around and see what the proximity is. And we run a lot of A-B tests in that experience. From a hotel company perspective, I tend to fall in while I like both, I tend to be more map oriented when I am looking for a specific destination where I want to stay. Because I am looking at proximity. Even if I don't know the area, I probably know some general guidelines around what I am looking for. And then I see where that property is relative to that. But the reality is, if you look across the entire ecosystem, that's usually not the primary search. So most of the time you're actually entering your destination with some sort of autocomplete functionality. You're typing that in and you get a list of responses. Um, and you look across the entire hospitality industry and everybody does things this way. So we've always been back and forth where we feel that the map is more valuable, right? When you're kind of making a decision. But what we've started to realize is even though we all love them, um, the experience and that data during all those A-B tests starts to show us that users prefer to see that list-based view um, as opposed to the map, map view, right? We, you know, we've, we've toggled the alternate view of saying, how do you see your results? Um, and even though there's a lot of proponents for maps a, and, and our gut feel is, hey, let's be different and let's actually create a slightly better experience for all of our users, um, what we realize is list still drives more conversion. 
That's honestly a really fascinating example because that that could allude to just simply the snappiness of the experience because the list is going to be way easier to grab and, and display, whereas a map's going to be more interactive in its own, but it's also going to be tougher to go grab that data because I, I imagine you're not creating your own maps, but maybe you are. We're not. And, and, and you see this all the time, right? It's a, it's a tough experience to nail down, right? Ideally, all of the data points that you want are mapped. So you could look anywhere across the world and you could see it and you could interact with that map. But the reality is that is way too much data, right? And that experience will never be snappy. And you, you guys have probably seen it firsthand. That experience tends to be cumbersome. Um, so, uh, you know, I was doing a vacation search looking for a place for me and my family to stay. And what happens is you move around on the map. Once you actually stop the, the map move, right, you've got whether it's a drag event or a mouse move event, you actually then will trigger another search. So, you know, you've got some sort of loading sequence, then you reload the data based on the, you know, what you're actually looking at that moment in time. It feels cumbersome. And I don't think any company has really solved that that well. Um, because the reality is I think I, as a user, have an expectation that all that data is there at any given time. But then I think about it from a technical perspective, and that is incredibly difficult to do, right? It's not difficult to actually do it, but to do it and to have a great user experience um, is very, very difficult to do. Um, so that's how we look at the data and find that right experience. But you're absolutely right, Nick. Like I, It feels like if it's something that was ever solved the right way, users would love map-based searches. Um, it's just that compromise around performance always feels like it's a hindrance there. I'd actually love to put a pin in this one and obviously not go too too deep into it um, here, but uh, I'd like to take a look at some of that, that data, look at those conversion curves. I like to compare, like if, if you're presenting an A-B test where the default is map for one set and the default is list for another set, let's take a look at those conversion curves and see how they look. Because what we're probably going to find is when it's reliable, the map is better. It's just we're presenting a reliability problem more often than not because we're having to bring in that extra data set, that extra third-party dependency that, that you don't have to do in that list view. So uh, I think we'd find some really profound results there. It could be. And, and I think to your point, right, context of the individual user matters. Um, you know, you may be searching for a location that only has one property. Do you really care at that moment in time, right? Uh, or you're traveling on business. And honestly, you may not generally care about the outside area because you're going to be working and you're going to see the inside of your hotel room. So you're probably right. It depends on the type of customer that's actually looking. You know, whenever I do vacation type searches, the map's incredibly important to me, right? Because I'm looking at what's in the area. Um, for work, it probably depends on what I'm going to be doing outside of work, right? Because usually otherwise I'm inside four walls in a building somewhere. So it's probably, in that case, the map is not as relevant, but it depends on what I'm going to be doing. So it brings you back to that original point, right? What works for some users may not work for another one. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. For work, for me, I just say, hey, where are you guys staying? Exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and from a user experience on mobile, I will always over-pinch or under-pinch the map too. And then, it's, then I get that delay because it's got to now populate 300 hotels on the map. And yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that is a real problem. And we actually looked at it as much as I'd like to tease you, Chuck, and say it's just a truck problem. The reality is the density is incredibly important, right? That search density. Um, and actually, I mean, Google does a massive amount of research and they, they, prevent, they present an amazing user interface, um, you know, because um, when 
even like looking at how their product can be leveraged, they look at that search density, they look at those zoom levels and they realize, right, lots of little dots is not always the best thing to do. And they've gotten that experience so fine tuned that even if you're looking, you know, the roads, the colors, the outlines of the buildings, they find the right view to present at any zoom level. Um, but once you start overlaying information on top of it, so in our case, let's say you're searching for hotels in the San Diego area, you're going to get a lot, right? So knowing what do you show at that wide zoom level? Do you show individual properties and lots of little flags? Do you show clusters? That's an incredibly difficult challenge to solve um, and doing it the right way. And you're absolutely right. Nobody's cracked it perfectly. There's some, some things that work better than others, but I have yet to see a perfect experience. I just think we need a bottom third that says that's a Chuck problem. So we can just present that. Every time. <laughs> I, I'm told that I have a lot of Chuck problems, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> so, so what are some of the differences we kind of touched on, but what are the differences you're looking at between desktop and mobile Android and iOS as you're evaluating these experiences? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So the reality is when you have less screen real estate, you need to present the data in a completely different way. Um, and what's happening is the way the users interact with mobile devices is also very, very different, right? You've got more pinch and zoom, tap and hold, right? You are scrolling up and down where on desktop, you're presenting a very, very different experience. So we are absolutely looking at it and our experience is different, right? We have a responsive site that scales to the content that the user is actually the size of the available real estate for the content that the user can actually see. Um, so we look at it as, you know, it is still one site, but it is lots of different experiences depending on what you're looking at. And it's not easy. Uh, my team constantly, you know, has to deal with battles of when we push out a new feature, how do we make sure we test it across this entire ecosystem? You know, we test it on desktop across multiple brands. We test it on mobile across multiple brands. We test it on tablet across multiple brands as well. And then you've got iOS and Android thrown into the mix which is now a completely different experience, right? So web, it's responsive, it's scalable to, you know, the type of device that you're actually looking at. It expands and contracts and changes the layout. The navigational elements change. Obviously it's a very different strategy, right? Menus, um, you know, open menus versus hamburger style menus that expand um, when you're actually interact with them. We're on mobile, we're actually, you know, leveraging some of those native controls. Um, Chuck, I don't have an easy answer for you because the reality is um, my the creative team that I actually work with every single day, um, they they think about this type of stuff. And when we're collaborating with them, it makes our lives easier because they bring those elements of consideration. And they say, this is the type of behavior users are looking at on a mobile device. So let's think about the value that you're actually looking to bring and let's figure out the best way to present it. A-B testing is also far more challenging on mobile, if you actually think about it, right? A-B testing on web, while not easy, once you get it up and, st and started, you have a framework around how you're actually doing some of those things. Because the argument is that website behavior can be overridden in any user's browsers. On mobile, it's a completely different challenge, right? Especially if all of your... Um, if the way that your app is built is very, very native based, so it wants to take take advantage of all device features. If you want to run an A-B test, you have to, it's not easy to inject that type of experience there. You have to give a lot of thought. You have to make a much larger investment in testing that experience. So what, you know, what we actually see is you want to make sure, you know, 
and not that running A-B tests on web is easy. Um, it requires, you're a little bit more free with around the, the types of tests you're willing to run, right? You say this may not be successful, right? High risk, high reward type of tests, you're more willing to run them on web because the argument is the benefit may be worthwhile, um, even though the risk may be high. Because easy enough, you get it to market relatively quickly, you expand it out to a small audience. If it's successful, you could grow it to a larger audience. On mobile, because you have to make a large, much larger investment into building that alternate experience, um, it's a lot more difficult to do. So we do start, you know, usually when we have to start thinking of things like this, we do think web first. Um, and it's not what we want to do, by the way. We know that our customers that interact with our mobile apps are, you know, uh, they're far more evangelists of our product because they are interacting with it. You know, they're taking the time to download an alternate product to actually interact with it far more so. Um, but just the nature of how the ecosystem works, it is far more difficult of a challenge to do on app than it is on web. Um, so Chuck, lots of problems that we constantly have to solve because we're supporting lots of different form factors and lots of different um, essentially products, right? Like the way I kind of think of it is I say we have one site and one app, but the reality is we have one site that scales to all these different factors and we have two apps, right? iOS and Android are completely different platforms. Um, and while we want our experience to be consistent there, we put a lot of hard work into making sure the experience is consistent between both platforms. It doesn't just automatically happen. And then to add a huge element to that is, is the average Android device is generally speaking less powerful than the average iOS device. So you have a kind of a misconception that happens as a result of that, and that um, most performance problems are created on the wire, on the network. But the reality is it's created by the device. So the device itself being slower on Android, how do you create a better customer experience if the average device is slower? Yet here we are trying to still provide the same parity of features to both Android and iOS. So there's just a whole dichotomy of, of experience. And that, that's true on both app and mobile web experience, both of them, right? It, like that, that concept applies to both. Do you know which friction points are hurting you the most? Finding friction with your current tech stack is a good start, but monitoring and digital analytics tools only tell part of the story, leaving you with unanswered questions. Only Blue Triangle quantifies revenue-robbing friction on every page so you can prioritize issues and fix what matters most. Companies can't afford websites with maddening friction. Visit bluetriangle.com today and turn observability into profitability. To learn more or request a demo, visit bluetriangle.com. Absolutely does. And, and we actually run into that problem all the time. Uh, so when we're actually looking at our RUM data, um, you know, because the way I tend to look at it is here's, uh, you know, desktop web for all intents and purposes. And here's mobile web and we'll actually look at it across the operating systems, iOS and Android. Um, the questions that we always get is why is Android significantly slower than iOS? Um, are we not optimizing for, you know, Google Chrome on Android? And the reality is, and this is something that's been incredibly helpful when we look at our RUM data, is we'll look at the operating system version. Because you're right, when you look at things within the US, you know, iOS and Android tend to be equivalent platforms, right? The split between them is almost insignificant. Um, but when you start looking worldwide, Android has far greater adoption. And the reality is, you know, the devices are cheaper, right? They're more easily accessible. Um, older devices continue to stay functioning, right? You may have an older version of the Android OS running on an older device, 
but it gives you the features and functionality that you actually need. But then Nick's absolutely right. As the browsers, you know, start taking advantage of the processing power of that device, um, they may not be able to do so. So when we start looking at our RUM data, you're right, it's not as easy as, you know, comparing ourselves on iOS and Android. When we start actually saying for a like-for-like -like comparison, we have to start saying, are the newer operating systems of Android as fast as iOS? Um, because the reality is, you know, that the types of devices that they're on are then somewhat equivalent. And then you start taking a look at that data and say, all right, you know, they're almost performant. So then let's look at those older devices and see if there's anything we could do, as opposed to saying we royally screwed up and didn't look at Android at all. So it becomes very difficult. You, you definitely get sucked down the rabbit hole a little bit of saying what's going on in my data and you start investigating. Next thing you know, it's dark outside and you should have left work hours ago. <laughs> so, and, and you touched on this, but what, what is your balance of traffic and bookings? Are more people still coming to the website or are they more using the mo native app? Is it more mobile web? What do you see? On web, uh, our traffic split. So the reality is we have just as much mobile traffic as we do desktop traffic. Uh, and it's nice. And mobile continues to grow, right? That That's just the trend that we're seeing. Um, our mobile app usage is a portion of what it is um, on web. And, you know, we're working very, very hard to figure out how we drive more traffic that way. Because, like I said, the consumers there, there are evangelists. They love using the platform. That platform converts at a much higher level. And one of the company strategies that we're trying to do is how do we drive more traffic that way? How do we make, um, you know, consumers more aware of what our app is, the benefits that it brings. Um, the difference in between web and app is web is mainly a shopping and an account management experience, right? That's just what you do in these types of platforms. Um, our competitors do it as well. So what happens is when you're on web, you're shopping or you're managing your account in some way, right? And the argument is you're probably managing your account for that shopping experience, whether it's part of our loyalty program and you want to see how many points you earn, the argument is you're usually redeeming those points on stay, which leads back to the shopping experience. So it's kind of circular. On app, the experience is very, very different, right? We could take advantage of far more features, um, location aware features, some of the device sensors themselves. Um, so our app is not just a shopping app. Um, what we do is our app has two main modes. It supports the shopping and account management functionality that it does on web. But then what we also offer is when the user actually has a stay um, at one of our properties, the app uh, toggles into what we refer to as in-stay mode, right? And it's that in-stay experience. And while you're actually at the property, instead of making that shopping experience firsthand, we're saying, how can we make your stay the best it could possibly be? Um, so we put all those features at your fingertips, being able to see your reservation, see information about the property, how you could interact with that property at any given time, what there is to do around that property gives you the ability to, um, you know, change anything about your stay, right? You want to stay a little bit longer. Um, so that that's when we actually look at it and we do think of them as very, very different products. And we're very, very proud of our mobile app and we're trying to figure out how we drive more traffic that way. Yeah. And that also opens up that in-stay experience. How do we drive frictionless experiences inside that to create repurchase, like get somebody to book again. That's what it's all about. That's, that's building brand loyalty. So, you know, creating some brand conversions and things like that inside that in-stay experience is profound. It is. And, and Nick, there's a whole other challenge there. And you've probably heard this as a, an industry term, right? How do we transition, you know, the physical to the digital? 
And, and that's something that we see as a hotel company, right? Uh, we sell, the reality is I'm selling a digital product, right? Um, but that digital product relates once the user completes that purchase to a physical product when they actually arrive at that property. And then they have a physical experience with that property that then they may need help interacting with back to our digital product. And transitioning in between the two, having awareness into where the user is during either shopping or during their stay journey and being able to give them the stuff that actually helps, which long-term drives more buying experience is incredibly difficult. And that's something, you know, we're always trying to figure out how to tackle. How do we make that in-stay experience as best as it could possibly be? How do we support our properties and our owners? Because the reality is then we'll be able to drive more guests their way. Yeah, the, the physical and digital is interesting. I remember years ago, because I've traveled all my career, I remember in, it, probably a decade ago when they came out with the digital keys and I tried it the first time and I couldn't get the darn, darn thing to work with the app constantly. And so to this day, I won't do digital key. I still do the physical key because I had such a bad experience initially. It's not an easy problem to solve, right? But that, that is one of the cool parts about my job, right? Where I could sit down and I could try to figure out how do you take a physical structure right? How do you take hardware and how do you interact digital software with it? And I've done, had way too many communications about digital keys and um, trying to figure out the best way to make that work. And Chuck, it's not easy. I don't envy anybody in the industry. Um, you know, we, we launched it a while back and we are still trying to figure out how we can make it the best it could possibly be. And how can we make sure it is actually working seamless uh, within both our products and our properties? Because you're right, it's very, very easy to have a very difficult experience and say this feature isn't worthwhile, right? Old keys work just fine. Why don't I just use those? But the reality is you have your phone on you all the time and consumers do have the expectation that you could do everything with your phone, right? Why do I need to dig into my pocket when I already have something in my hand? Um, and, you know, we can't ignore that. We need to figure out a way to make that work for everybody. I was just going to say that that brings up the whole concept of device compatibility that we were kind of talking about earlier with, you know, certain Android operating systems might or really the device, not necessarily the operating system, but certain devices aren't necessarily going to have the compatibility to be able to function with the digital key. So how do you make sure you present a good customer experience to them? If they're like sitting here trying to click the digital key, they have no idea that their phone can't do it. Do you know that their phone can't do it? And how do we make sure that we create that seamless experience to get back into that brand conversion kind of element to make sure that we're building our brand and building that good stay experience. It's pretty cool. You're right. And it's, it's not even, even if the device physically has, you know, the capabilities. Um, so, you know, they have the appropriate chips in there that they can make that communication. The user may not give us access to actually interact with that hardware. Um, so there's a whole other aspect. So you're absolutely right. You have to put lots of, um, checks along the way to make sure that experience is going to work, right? To use this feature, you need to enable this functionality or like Nick pointed out, if the device doesn't support it, don't even show it, right? Don't take the user through that frustrating experience only to land them somewhere where their hardware won't work, right? So those are elements of friction we give lots and lots of thoughts to. Interesting, because you are less likely to leave your phone in the room than you leave your key in the room when you go to the gym or something. <laughs> I literally, I literally just locked myself out of my hotel room three days ago. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I was down eating breakfast. I was like, dang it, I'm gonna have to go to the front desk. I've done it multiple times. 
So, Kenny, you've touched on there's a lot of teams at Wyndham that are touching and impacting the digital experiences. How do you address this in a way when there's a problem? Because anybody can break the site, right? Or any team, you know, whether it's a a new tag added or a new feature or whatever. Um, How do you address this in a way that doesn't result in like finger pointing and stalemates over where the problem lies? It's not easy. So, so the reality is, you know, we talk to each other and we're as transparent as we possibly can. Um, you know, we have awareness into features that we actually push into production. I'm not saying problems don't happen, right? Uh, these types of situations happen in every organization. I'd love to speak in front of you and say, we never have these problems or we're perfect, but we're not, right? We're people and mistakes and types of issues, unintended consequences happen all the time. Um, so the best that we could do is we make everybody aware. So you're absolutely right. Um, you know, security changes at any point in time can go in that impact the state of our application. So we have a very great relationship with our security team. Whenever changes are happening with our site, they let us know. Same exact thing with tags, right? We, you guys, um, I could have a whole conversation with you about tags, right? That's actually how I got started with Blue Triangle is starting to have a conversation of, I'm very embarrassed about the spider charts that, you know, appear on web page test. Um, how do I cut this down a little bit? And having um, a great tag manager strategy is incredibly helpful, right? Having um, a tag management tool, having visibility into what those tags are doing on the site, having this concept of a constant security policy, right? Where new stuff doesn't get dropped onto your site because of piggybacking. Um, so if folks don't know what piggybacking is, we work with a lot of tag management vendors that then basically say, oh, we use another partner. So now that tag then runs another tag. And all of a sudden, you know, we run into a performance issue. So then it's, well, it's not the vendor's problem. It's the vendor vendor's problem. We're stuck chasing that down. So having a content security policy has helped us trying to manage that a little bit, because what happens is, you know, we put a wall up and we say, this is our product. If you're going to make production changes to our product, we have to be aware. But on the internal side, the reality is communication, right? If we've got a release on the site, everybody's aware. If we're running a test on the site, we've got, you know, that testing team is working very, very closely with our product team that basically says, this is the test that we're looking to run. We've got the details on that test. We've got ways to trigger that test experience. We know when it's going to run and how long it's going to run for. Um, like I said, the tag manager vendors. Um, so we're managing that through our enterprise tag manager as well. So we know when something was set up, it's easy enough to go in the logs and history. If somebody forgot to let somebody know, nothing appears on the site unless they actually pass through the content security policy that we've got set up. And on the security side, same exact thing, right? They let us know when they're actually making changes, but it's not easy because what happens is Chuck, at any point in time, everybody does the right thing but then something still happens unexpectedly. Um, and what we do is we get everybody together and we start figuring out the problem, right? And we essentially, it's a process of elimination. We talk and say, was there any changes in this platform? Somebody from that team is dedicated. They're looking at the logs. They're saying, nope, there's been no changes for that platform. We eliminate it and we move down the list. And the team is, uh, you know, from a finger pointing perspective, they kind of look at it and say, it's a challenge we have to solve. How do we resolve it? And the team is very, very proud of being able to provide that support and resolving the issues. Um, so I think that pride kind of supersedes the aspect of you broke something um, and having that type of mindset. So it, it's been, it took a long time, but I think everybody kind of likes working with each other and likes the end product that we put out. Um, so those types of scenarios are minimized, right? 
Sometimes you get a stressful situation, but the reality is everybody kind of realizes this is a stress in the moment thing. We get it resolved and everybody's proud of uh, getting the issue resolved. Gotcha. Okay. And, and how much are you all looking at core web vitals and comparing them to competitors? Is that a thing? We do that. We definitely do that. So, you know, you guys have helped us uh, get that set up a while back and we actually do two things, right? Um, so we, we kind of have been able to standardize core web vitals around how we actually monitor our site. We still have to fall back on what I'll refer to as legacy metrics. Um, the reality is they're just performance metrics that are out there that are no longer cool and hip. Um, but what happens is we try to look and measure our site based on the core web vitals and then drop down into you know, some of the other metrics if we need to. Competitors, it's kind of interesting. We will look at them and you know, we do take a little bit of pride in saying you know, how we look at our competitors. And, and the reason is you know, we'll get these types of questions all the time. And, and that's honestly one of the cool things that Google has done is they've started to standardize how web performance is measured everywhere to where now people are becoming aware of how important this is or before this my life was incredibly difficult you know trying to figure out why performance is impactful and google's done a nice job of spreading that story throughout the industry um, so it's nice to be able to measure those but one of the areas that it it, it kind of does a disservice and it's not malicious right and i understand why it's being done is people look at web vitals as absolutes so they'll look at my site and then they may look at, you know, apple.com or google.com. And then they'll say, well, you know, you guys are slower. Um, but the reality is we're not competing directly with them. They, you know, they, they take very, very different strategies to present a user experience, right? Google takes the minimalist. You actually have to search. You're here to search. So we're not going to distract you from anything else. Apple is very, very content heavy but it delivers that in an incredibly efficient way, right? They want to showcase their beautiful products, um, but you can't compare them to us, right? We have a very, very different strategy of what we do. Our teams are sized very, very differently than them. That's just the reality of the situation. So I, I look at looking at our competitors the same exact way, right? Our competitors, um, they're in different areas of the industry, right? Some competitors are far more invested in the upscale version of the product that necessitates far more media heavy uh, content. So if I say we're significantly faster than them, I'm not sure that's a massive achievement, right? They're targeting a very, very different consumer. They're targeting a luxury consumer that's looking at, you know, interactive media, their content probably takes care of more, more of the page. So I, I look at it as it's interesting to know, Chuck, but I try not to measure ourselves by that. I try to measure ourselves by what we think that ideal experience is. At which point are we starting to lose conversion? How do we invest? Some of this other stuff is honestly nice to have. It's nice to be able to have that data at my disposal easily, but that's not the primary driver of what I do every single day. All right, just two last questions. What do companies get wrong about friction in their digital experience? What's a common belief that you disagree with completely and think about differently? I'm not sure that's an easy one. Nick definitely hit on one. Speed trumps all. That's just not the reality. The, the way I look at it is I can make an, a massive investment into um, the performance of our website. So I could go and talk to our leadership team and say, you know, let's invest $10 million into the site and we'll be able to, you know, cut the performance numbers or improve the performance numbers to where you know, the site is twice as fast as it really is. I know that's not going to bring me the conversion. 
So having that context on what that ideal conversion is, is incredibly important. And the, the other thing that I'd probably say is not testing, um, but everything I'm saying is not rocket science, right? You know, putting new features into the market without testing them out in some way, um, as well as taking a really, really long time and thinking about that feature being, you know, as perfect as it possibly can be, and then dropping it onto the market without getting any sort of test data and indications is usually not a strategy for success. The reality is you want to be able to get things out into the market as quickly as possible, be able to test them out, make sure the experience is what you think that it is, because Nick hit on this a few times. You, I may think it's the perfect experience because it's the perfect experience for me, but that's the beauty of the web platform, right? There's lots of different users. Our site has that element of reach that I'm incredibly proud of. And lots of people are going to think of very, very different approaches that, you know, my, my mindset is just limited. I may not have even considered things to that point of view. So being able to test that experience and being able, you know, getting something out there that's not perfect and tweaking it along the way is far more valuable than ruminating on something that's perfect and then making sure it's shiny and polished and dropping it onto the market. Because the reality is while most of those will be successful, um, they'll either not be as successful as they possibly could have been because of all the testing, or they may not be successful at all because a key assumption was made somewhere um, that wasn't validated along the way. Very good. Very good. So final question, what's one question you wish we'd asked that we didn't? Hmm. Good question. Um, I'd probably try to figure out, you know, how I got myself in this position, right? And what have I actually done that, that's been successful um, at Wyndham that I'm incredibly proud of? And that, the reality of that situation is, um, it, it, honestly, I think when I connected with the Blue Triangle team a long, long time ago, I, I always believed this, right? It, it, you know, everybody knows having a performance site is important. But it's an incredibly difficult challenge, right? Because what's happening is you have a whole bunch of code that runs on a whole bunch of different devices. Um, and figuring out what's causing performance issues is a very layered type of a problem. Um, so what, what I've been able to do to, being, you know, to be successful and be in a position that I possibly am is being able to gather the data around trying to figure out what's going on, right? It's before I had a, a great RUM tool at my disposal, um, the challenge has always been, you know, I run a session, I look at a waterfall, but I'm only making an assumption on behalf of the behavior of one user. So being able to aggregate that data um, is what actually has made me successful. So tag management's been one, right? When I first started working with our digital products, I'm embarrassed to say how many tags we had running on the site. And the reality is because I'm still embarrassed to say how many tags we have running on the site, but it was three times higher than it actually was. You know, we're talking a number in the hundreds. Um, and I, you know, uh, the Blue Triangle tool gave me the ability to start taking a look at that data and saying, what's the performance cost of some of these vendors? And honestly, just doing an audit across that entire ecosystem and reaching out to folks that asked for a tag to be put on the site five years ago, uh, where they're like, no, that, you know, that campaign ended three months after we launched. I don't know why that tag's not on there. And it's more because somebody didn't ask. Um, is a really, really easy way to gain performance. And I encourage everyone to do it because that is far easier than starting to look at your own code and starting to think from a technology perspective, how do you deliver in the most efficient way? How do you only deliver the content to the users actively looking at and load all the content 
you know, the user is not looking at in some sort of a dynamic fashion. Um, that stuff's incredibly difficult. Um, but taking a look at the external impact on your site, um, I think is something that goes very, very neglected, right? People drop a tag manager onto the site, they get these types of requests. Every one of those tags has some sort of benefit. I'm not denying that, but I think very few people look at it as a whole. And honestly, that, that was my first success when, when I came over at Wyndham is starting to take a look at the impact the third parties are having on our site, being able to start doing an audit saying, are they still needed? And then putting a structure in place, how do we make sure new tags just don't appear on our site without some sort of thorough review? Um, it was, in hindsight, it was really, really easy compared to the stuff that we're doing today. Um, but it's definitely been one of the more successful things that we've done. And it was relatively easy. So I, I encourage everybody to do so. I think one of the most wild things that I've encountered in, through uh, many years of doing this is uh, the ability to inject JavaScript through a third-party tag. So they give, as, as a feature of their platform, a marketing platform that's on there to just be a pixel, they, they give the ability to inject JavaScript, which then means you have non-technical, no change management, no event markers, no anything in the process, and they can just fire JavaScript onto our website right into prod immediately. And that's that to me is just such a a control factor of, the, of being able to come down into this tag governance and be able to apply that CSP to make sure you're locking down everything from being able to have these environments where you're just effectively it's JavaScript injection, not literally at a malicious level, but almost at an incompetent level. And so you need to make sure that you have those controls in place that kind of protect from that. Yeah, and sometimes our vendors make assumptions, right? So we had a vendor that added functionality. But they were running uh, their content out of a, an AWS, um, you know, uh, a, out of an AWS environment over in Asia, right? So the latency around delivering that content onto our website was just slow. Um, so it worked perfectly for them when they tested because they were testing out of Asia. And then when we went to test the content out of North America, we're like, it's incredibly slow. So it was even as simple as, you know, somebody had the best possible intentions. But the reality of how it was actually being executed wasn't there. So we just have to have a conversation, right? Can you make sure you're serving the content a little bit closer to the users? Because we believe the value of what you're doing, but you're not doing it in the most efficient way. And when the easy tweak on their side, it was just, you know, an assumption that they had made because of how they look and how they look at our product, you know, the types of customers that they're dealing with every single day. They didn't consider that, you know, we're a global company and we have different types of consumers that may have different types of experiences depending on where in the world they're coming from. Amazing. Well, thank you, Kenny, for joining us for this episode of the Frictionless Experience. Where can listeners connect with you, follow you, what, where you're like social, what, what you preferred? Yeah, probably reaching out to me on LinkedIn uh, is probably the easiest way. So uh, maybe you guys can help me out. I'll put my uh, LinkedIn info as part of this episode, and uh, I think that'll be the easiest way. So today we discussed how Kenny measures and resolves site performance friction, unique aspects of mobile and desktop experiences, and the role of Core Web Vitals and how that compares to your competitors. To recap, here are three frictionless ideas to take the smooth path to trust and loyalty. Kenny used the example that you can't just remove content to have a faster site. 
because that doesn't mean you're actually resulting in more conversion or a better experience. It's all about the performance in the context of the experience you were trying to present. He leverages data such as conversion and A-B testing to understand his own unique audience and how they prefer to interact with his content. So it's all about balancing speed, aesthetics, and usability to create the best experience. Number two, measuring your core web vitals against competitors is important, but their content strategy and experience is only in the context of their own audience, which can differ from yours. Try to benchmark yourself on what you think the ideal experience is for your users. And for a company like Wyndham, with a physical and digital product, that means being aware of where the user is during their journey and tailoring mobile, desktop, even native app and in-person experiences to be frictionless. Number three, don't forget to test new features before launching them and continue to improve the experience after release. Kenny is constantly A-B testing experiences from site speed to creative UI and UX, understanding what variables drive the behavior they want to see, leading to more bookings. All right. Well, thanks, Kenny. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of The Frictionless Experience. Remember to follow us on your favorite podcast player app so you can automatically receive notifications when we upload a new episode. So leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you think and what topics you want us to cover in future episodes. We'd be happy to cover anything that might be causing you friction. And you can follow and connect with Nick and me on LinkedIn. So until next time, we'll see you later. Thanks for joining us on The Frictionless Experience. We hope you've gained valuable insights to fuel your digital success. Your frictionless journey is just beginning. For more episodes filled with expert strategies and a sprinkle of digital magic, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, keep optimizing, keep slaying friction, and keep embracing the frictionless revolution.